get started on this special and memorable weekend. If you are a member or former member of our military as a son of a veteran, I say thank you. The sacrificial nature of your service is not lost on Vertical Church. We are grateful for you. We understand this weekend is a holiday for family and for being outdoors and for celebrating the beginning of summer. But for many of us, it carries a much more serious tone. And I want to say if that's you, if you're in that place, we are cognizant of that. So welcome to the weekend services at Vertical. How's everyone so far? Yeah, fantastic. It's so good to see a full room here. We've been planning this weekend for months. We've had an incredible week since the last time we were together where we heard Catherine's story. If you weren't here for that, I encourage you to go to our social media, go to our YouTube feed and find that. It's a story that proves that the love of God is actually real. We value stories here at Vertical because in stories, we find that the truth of the love of God has its most beautiful expression. Think about it this way. The love of God isn't just a theory. I need to say this very plainly before we start out. It's not just something that we spit out in church. It's actually a reality. And stories prove that for us. Listen, this is something big for a preacher to say. I'll trade 10 sermons for one story any day. Because a story is so much more effective in telling us the love of God for us is true. Convincing us that God is who he says he is and that God can be trusted. Trust, there's an interesting word in our society today, isn't it? It's eroding, isn't it, Vertical Church? And a lot for good reason. I don't want you to miss this today, community. I want you to understand that our enemy is an opportunist. He will take general feelings of anxiety or frustration about the way the world is going, the way systems have let us down. Is it okay just to jump right in? It's the weekend. We're short on time. <laughs> the enemy is an opportunist. He will see what's going on in our society, in our culture. We thought about it this way. The enemy has been studying humanity for generations. He knows more about the history of the United States than you do. He's got a larger perspective about what's going on, and he sees that many of us are frustrated. As an opportunist, he will take that feeling and he will move in and he will give us something to blame for it. See Genesis. Most often the enemy offers God as the explanation for our frustration. He gives God as the reason for our lack of trust. It's been happening since the beginning. And I have to tell you, when it stops working, he'll stop using it. Forgive me for how simple this is going to sound today, but two things we have to know before we start receiving instruction today in this environment. They'll be on the screen for you. The first is that God is good. Thank you. The second is that God can be trusted. If we're going to submit to the process of being built, what we've been talking about for a few weeks, as Catherine's story so eloquently proved, we must be convinced of these two things this morning. Even when, hear me on this, even when suspicion moves in and convinces us that these two things may not be true, we have to hold to the belief that the pages of history and the pages of our history dictate that God is good and God can be trusted. It reminds me of a big promise that he makes kind of at the beginning of his Bible. And before I read this, I want you to pay special attention to the I wills, to the confident nature of the voice of God. Something I've had to convince myself of recently is that God is not nearly as shaky about my future as I am. Anybody with me? 
It's difficult for us to hear a confident voice and believe the power that's behind it. But with God, it's different. His confidence is backed by an eternal cosmic power that cannot fail. He says this in Zephaniah. Ever heard that quoted in church? <laughs> Chapter 3, 19 and 20. Check this out. God says, I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. At the time when I gather you together, for I will make your renown and praise among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes, before your very eyes. The words of God, this vertical, this, this explains so much about our community. It's how we can be so real about our stories. See, we celebrate at Vertical Church the places where we were lame because eventually those lame places become the building blocks for the future that God has designed for us. The enemy convinces us those are gaps or holes in our story that we should feel guilty about and ashamed over. We don't want to go back there, but we certainly will acknowledge them because when we submit them to the power of God Almighty, they become a firm foundation for who he's called us to be. So I have a question for you today. Do you feel lame? Do you feel lame because of Xanax? Lame because of sexual addiction or dysfunction? Lame because of substance abuse? Lame because you were raped or molested. Lame because you have been divorced perhaps many times. If you feel that way today, I want you to understand that God promises that he will gather the lame and the outcast and he will make their names great because of his power. God is in the rescuing business. Somebody let the church know. Fair warning, if you're here at Vertical Church, even if it's your first time, I just want to be up front with you. If you like being lame, you probably shouldn't stay here very long. Because in this place, God does what he says he will do. Largely because we get out of the way and we peel back religion and we pursue relationship with Jesus Christ. When that happens, miracles happen. Here's a phrase I want to give you. This is what God does here. He takes the lame, he changes their shame, and he restores their fortunes. Look around you. Many people in this room are here today having experienced this very cycle. Let me convince you today that he didn't just do this for Catherine and then run out of steam or conviction or ability. This is who God is there's enough of God's restorative power to go around for all of us. No need to ration. God is a rescuer. Catherine's story last weekend, it matters. And your story matters too. Where we're going to head today in this teaching is only going to be further proof of that. I think we've established pretty firmly with my pastoral tone already this morning that God is in the rescue business. The biggest remaining question that we're going to work out for roughly the next few minutes is how. How does God typically rescue and build people? As with many ideas this large, I think it's helpful for us to start with the how he doesn't before we move to how he does. 
This is the portion of our service, and this happens often, where it feels like I, a person who probably doesn't really know you that well, is reading your mail. Because I'm going to be discussing very common things, very common traps that we all fall into, especially the most religious among us. I say common because the Bible actually said it first. Check this out. We're going to dig into a lot of the Bible today. Is that all right? I mean, it is church. I don't know what you were expecting. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says it this way, the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. Whoa, 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 stop, stop, stop. I know, I know how this works. I've been in church a long time, but I still have the same feelings you do when I get out of my vehicle and I'm walking to the front door, that feeling that kind of washes over me like I'm the only one. Have you ever been there? I'm the only one struggling with this particular thing. Nobody in the history of planet Earth has ever thought these thoughts that I'm having or done the things that I've been doing even last night. Have you ever been there? The Bible says very clearly in 1 Corinthians, written by a guy a long time ago, the temptations in your life, they're no different from what other people experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. I would like to argue with God about that psalm. How about you? When you're tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. The Bible says very clearly, look, people fall into temptation, all of us. In fact, most of us fall into the same temptations. But God is faithful. He is there. And he provides a way out for you to take that way out. Now, careful, if you're here this morning and you're thinking, I didn't take the way out and that shame and guilt is starting to move in, don't let this happen. I'm not finished yet. Romans says this, all of us have failed. Even the Christians, we're going to get to that in just a moment. All of us, all of us have fallen short. All of us have failed. For some reason, it's moved into modern Christianity, especially American Christianity, that we must pretend that we don't fail when we get together. And that's just not working anymore. When we do that, we limit the reach and the scope of the love of God over our stories. We admit our failures together so that we can be bound together by the love of God. I'm going off script. I'm losing my place. So let me describe for you some of the reasons why we misunderstand the way that God builds us, how we do that. The first one is this. God doesn't build us alone. There's a big misconception here. It's the 007 approach to spirituality. From the beginning, God actually announced, and you'll see this in the very first few pages, it's just not good for people to be alone. But he doesn't just leave it there. Check this out in Proverbs 18. This comes a little bit later in the Bible. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Do you hear how smart the Bible is? Just take that sentence for a moment and put it up against the pages of your life. Think about the times in your life that you are the least proud of. Does this filter work? Were you isolated? Did you seek your own desire? Did you go against sound judgment? Here's how this works out. You find yourself in a place you never thought you would be and you look in the mirror one morning and you say, how did I get here? Let me answer that question for you. You may have been talking to a lot of people about those decisions, but you were the only person that you were listening to. In those moments, 
You are breaking away from sound judgment. God does not build us over time alone. That's not the way that it works. Second, he doesn't, brace yourself for this. I, have, I struggle to write this down. He doesn't build us through consumerism. I know sometimes I wish that he did. Purchases, planning for purchases, flaunting purchases. That's not God building us. It isn't us being built, it's us becoming numb. It's us moving ourselves further into self-sufficiency, which is only prepping for isolation. See problem one. I know this is difficult teaching here, especially in Madison. We have everything we need and want and then want again, don't we, everyone? Well, that was just a test for honesty. You hear? We have everything. I'm not trying to shame you. I'm just saying it's difficult to be dependent upon God when we have so many other things we can depend on. Let me let Jesus speak into this moment here in Luke chapter 12, verse 15. He's addressing a crowd and he says, take care. Read, be careful, protect yourself against the least bit of greed. Life is not defined by what you have, even when you have a lot. Ouch. God doesn't build us through our things. He doesn't build us alone, and he doesn't build us through rebellion. It seems like the easier way we discuss this heavily, week one, we have a choice after we're triggered to either submit or rebel. Many of us choose rebellion thinking that our plans are going to work out, and they usually don't. Let me add another layer to this teaching, something I'm beginning to understand in a new way recently. Often the path that we take is based on the choices that the people in our family before us have also taken. How we respond to triggers, you may want to jot this down, it may be the smartest thing I say all morning. How we respond to triggers is largely determined by how we have observed other people in our family respond to triggers. And the enemy, he knows this. Look back over your family history. You will be surprised to find how many similar decisions have been made through the generations. The Bible addresses this too in Acts chapter 7 verse 51. I love this description because it describes me often. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. That just means you haven't submitted to a covenant relationship with your heart and with your ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Your fathers did the same thing. Men, if you're struggling in your story, I encourage you to start looking inward and then start looking at your history. You don't look back at your father to judge, just to examine. The way he lived has influenced you. And women the same. This opens the door for me to offer you a brief but strong challenge this morning. I had this quote shared to me a few weeks ago by a man named Terry Real. He operates in therapy circles. He says this, family dysfunction rolls down from generation to generation like a fire in the woods taking down everything in its path until one person in one generation has the courage to turn and face the flames. That person brings peace to their ancestors and spares the children that follow. Perhaps, I don't know your family, but perhaps you are one among many generations of rebellious people. The love of God can move into our story and lovingly grab us by the shoulders and help us turn around to face the fire. Maybe you're the one. 
to submit to being built by God. Remember, we've all fallen into these traps. Let me just say this very plainly. Failure doesn't make you unique. Failure makes you one of us. So what's the alternative to all these? If these are three common problems, common traps, what do we do instead? The simplicity of this is going to stagger you. Not only in this teaching, but also in the Bible, if you were to read the pages to look for the answer. How do we submit to being rescued and built by God? What is the answer? If we can't trust our things, if we can't trust ourselves, if we can't trust our plans, what do we trust? Are you ready for the answer? Community. Community. Now, let me go down into second gear here. Because churches, unfortunately, have begun to use this way more as a slogan than as a way of life. In fact, there are movements in the marketplace today that will label themselves as community. They have a dramatic misunderstanding of what this word actually means. The trouble with this word community is that we all instantly have our own personal definition of what it actually means. This leads to so many problems in churches, even ours. To go one step further, this misunderstanding is a big reason why Jesus followers trade buildings often on Sunday mornings. To a Jesus following person, let me say this, community is a way of life, not just a slogan. It's described so well in the book of Galatians. This book that we have recorded in our Bible is actually a letter from an angry pastor. It's worth reading. He's frustrated at the people that he's trying to lead, the things that they are doing, the decisions that they're making. Just before chapter 6, where we're going to read today, he gives very specific instructions about how to be careful to operate in a community correctly. As we read chapter 6 together today, I want us to see the earthy nature of these instructions. Can you hang on to listen to four verses? Let me read them for us. Dear brothers and sisters, he's finally calmed down at this point in the letter. If another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently, circle that, gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. And be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens. And in this way, obey the law of Christ. I love this. Some pastors said this on a Sunday. They get fired. <laughs> if you think you're too important to help someone, you're fooling yourself. I think he said it that way. You're not that important. Pay careful attention to your own work. Then you will get the satisfaction of a job well done. My kids love that reward. You won't need to compare yourself to anyone else. See, this Verse, this passage calls us to something very difficult. And then the Bible, as it does so often, anticipates our pushback to that difficult calling. What are these verses actually telling us today? I know that's a question you're asking. Let me answer it for you. The first is this. Even people who know Jesus still fail. 
You need to write that down on a post-it or in your phone, and you need to look at that at least once a day. Even people who know Jesus still fail. No need to pretend. No need to be silenced by shame. No need to assume that you're the only one. Failure, and I don't know if anyone's ever told you this in church before, but failure is part of the journey. If you aren't failing, you aren't trying. Understand that you are part of a supernatural cosmic battle that is so much larger than you and you will be victim to failure for the rest of your life. The cross of Jesus Christ covers every single one of those failures, both past, present, and future. Even people who know and love Jesus still fail. Now understand, you may not be convinced, so let's just do a brief exercise here today. I want to ask anyone in the room, since the last time we were together, that's one week, if you've lived life perfectly in front of the eyes of God Almighty, if you'll just go ahead and stand up for us. I'll give you a moment. Look around, community. Everyone is sitting, including this man. I guess that settles it, doesn't it? Failure and the reminder of failure as a plan of the enemy has now lost its power. Take that, devil. Secondly, others who know Jesus should be willing to help when failure happens. Let me repeat that. Others who know Jesus and see people who know Jesus who are failing should be willing to move in and help. This is what Galatians chapter 6 actually teaches us that a community does. But careful, failure is tricky. It spreads like a virus. One of the hardest things to do, I've been told, when you're saving someone that's drowning is to not drown yourself. Let me just give you a chance to evaluate. Is this how your relationships go? People move into a relationship with you. They're with you for a while. They try to help you and then eventually they distance themselves from you and you become angry at them and then you start asking for someone else to rescue you. Maybe you're the problem. Maybe the people who are trying to help you, you are pulling under water. Just a moment for you to try to be honest with yourself. Now, for those of you in the room that are helpers, and we have a lot of those because the church attracts those, doesn't it? If you're a helper, let me ask you to roll back and think through your experience. Just because you can identify the problem doesn't mean that you are the person to solve the problem. Let me roll back because you don't realize how intelligent that is. (laughs) In your life, Just because you can identify a problem in someone else's life doesn't mean that you are the person to solve that problem. Sometimes there are other people that can help people in your life better than you can. I need you to be smart enough to know when this is the case. The Bible says, be careful when you move in to attempt to restore someone because the thing that tempted them may also tempt you. And don't you know the enemy is just that smart? Speaking of the enemy, let's roll into the last thing these passages are teaching us today. Arrogance and comparison are the enemy. Those are strong words from the Bible, right? Hey, you're not that important. 
That doesn't sell a lot of Christian books and albums today, does it? I want to tell you today that you are important based on the life and the lap and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. What the Bible is telling us today is you are not more important than the person sitting next to you. The good news of Jesus Christ is that we are all equally important in the eyes of God. It's our job to keep arrogance and comparison from convincing us otherwise. It's so easy for that to happen, isn't it? Somehow we convince ourselves we're better than the people that we go to church with. Not true. So these verses give us what we need today. We're almost finished. You still with me? A definition of community. That's what we really need. Here's what the Bible says community is. A collective of humble burden bearers. That's a community. We hang on to humility and we bear each other's burdens. How do you find a place like this? It's no good for a church to tell you, hey, get into community. We love community. We're the community's community at this community. <laughs> community is a lot like prayer and that churches will tell you to do it and then not tell you how to do it. And the Bible doesn't make that mistake. How do you find a collective of humble burden bearers? It happens this way, usually in subsequent steps. I have a picture because that's how I learn. It starts with a larger group of people, a hundred or more. One of the best places to start here at Vertical Church is a church service. Congratulations. If you're in this church service, you've taken a step, a step to be built by God, whether joining us in person or still joining us online. In gatherings like this, you can learn a lot about a place as you experience worship through music, Christian elements like scripture reading, communion, and guided prayer. You'll also receive instruction that gives you an understanding of the type of language that a community uses to describe what it does. Let me let you in on this. Every church has a culture. And a worship service is an excellent place to observe how that culture is played out. But here's the trick. You need to observe the language that is used and the actions that happen in lobbies and in living rooms. And you need to be able to discern, do all of those things match? As you're investigating churches, especially this one, I would love for you to apply that filter. You've set yourself in an environment that God uses to build people. That's so why so many people make so much time to be in these services. It's an excellent source, an excellent place to be able to grow, but it's not enough. You must move into something more focused, 10 or less. You should be in an environment weekly with 10 or less people so that you can discover how the things that you are learning and the things that you are experiencing are affecting other people. It's in this environment where you also begin to reveal who you are. That's scary, isn't it? That's why most people don't take that step. But I need to convince you today that we're all in process. And when we get in groups of 10, we're sharing with each other where we are in the process. And you, if you put yourself in this environment and begin to share your story, you will know the acceptance of Christian people. They will not judge you. They will not hear your story and run from you. Rather, they will respect you for having the courage to be vulnerable with who you are. You will see firsthand in this group of 10 or less, the love of God is expressed 
through people who don't have to love you, but choose to love you. God uses these environments to change us, to build us. They're an excellent resource, but they're not enough. This is the goal, the one-to-one. The Bible describes it this way, as iron sharpens iron, so one person will sharpen another person. If you seriously want God to build you, you will progress from this room to a living room or to a driveway with 10 or less people. And then you will sit with one person who you have allowed to know you at the deepest level where you've experienced trust and acceptance. And in that relationship, not a sermon, in that relationship, God will build you into the spectacular person he made you to be in the first place. God has us on a journey of healing. I want you to consider this today an assignment vertical church to take the steps necessary to be in each of these environments on a regular basis. We are a community committed to being real and committed to being generous. What does that mean for today's talk? It means that when we are together, we're going to be real with the things that burden us and we are going to be generous in meeting people in their burdens. May it be so at Vertical Church and may God add to our number of people who are experiencing authentic community. May he see his work through in this place, amen? May he build us over time to look more like Jesus. Let's pray together. God, following our pattern, we want to do two things in this prayer. We want to let you know that we are available. For those of us that you have rescued from our own plans that would result in our own demise, we say that we are available for the people who are coming after us who may be facing generations of rebellion in their family. We are available to help God mobilize us. Secondly, we say that we will be vulnerable in front of you, God, and other people. There are places where we are missing the mark. There are places where we are sinning and failing. Our desire is to no longer hide those from you, but to bring them to you so that they may be healed. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. First service, you were awesome. Have a great rest of the weekend. See you next week.